Hello and welcome everybody to a live Data for Subscriptions uh, episode. Today I have a great pleasure of welcoming Pavana Kumar to the show. Welcome Pavana. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Just a note to everybody who uh, might be dialing in, this is a live session and you have the opportunity of putting your questions into the chat and we'll make sure to pick them up either through the conversation or we'll do it at the end. If by any reason we wouldn't have the opportunity of taking your questions during the uh, conversation, we'll make sure to get back to you separately as well. But with that out of the way, Pavana, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself as well as what you do at the firm? Of course. So um, Pavana Kumar, I am a partner in the advertising and marketing group at Davis and Gilbert. Uh, we are a New York based law firm. Uh, we're a full service firm, but we are particularly entrenched in the retail marketing and advertising industries. So much of my practice is working with brands, retailers, and specifically subscription based companies, really in all aspects of their marketing. Um, so that could be promotions, gift card programs, loyalty, rewards, etc. Um, but with this recent regulatory focus on subscription based programs, specifically, a lot of what I've been focused on in the past couple of years is auditing subscription-based programs and e-commerce flows for compliance with these really evolving uh, regulations. A um, bit about me, uh, I grew up in London. I came over to the US for college and for law school. I have been at Davis and Gilbert and in the advertising and marketing industry for my entire career um, from back when I was a summer associate in 2011. Um, so now uh, 11, 12 years later, here we are. So, um, and I'm based in New York, of course, as is the rest of the firm. Fantastic, thank you so much. All right, let's just start with setting some baseline definitions for some of the terms that we're gonna talk about during today. And the one thing with regards to FTC, we're gonna talk about dark patterns, and then you also talk, we'll be talking about uh, drip pricing and subscription traps. Let's, uh, what, what do we mean by those, if you would define in your own words? Yeah, of course. So I think to, to level set, subscription programs specifically are regulated by the FTC and also by each state. So right now we've got a patchwork of 50 state laws that are constantly being updated. You know, California, New York recently updated their laws and a lot of other states like Colorado, Kentucky, DC have been following suit. Like Kentucky just enacted a new law two weeks ago. And so right now there's really a patchwork of laws governing what the FTC calls automatic renewal or negative option programs. So on the federal level, you have right now what they call the negative option rule. And so when I say negative option, so we're not getting confused with different terminology, that's any program where a company interprets a consumer's silence in the face of like an upcoming billing cycle as permission to continue billing them. So it's really anything where a person's being automatically charged on some kind of regular basis unless they cancel. And then there's also currently the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act, which currently regulates any kind of online automatic renewal program. And then there are various laws around uh, telemarketing and email marketing programs as well. So there are specific laws that regulate, you know, how you can market a subscription program, what disclosures people need to see when they sign up, um, how you acknowledge like the confirmation of various details of the program, and then regulations around how people can cancel and how you make it easy for them to cancel. So that's subscription specifically. Uh, recently, yeah. the FTC has been kind of throwing around this more vague term called dark patterns. Uh, dark patterns is defined by the FTC as any kind of design tactic, 
for example, in an e-commerce flow that tricks or manipulates the consumer into taking an action that they might not otherwise have taken. So that's broader than just subscription programs, but the FTC basically sees subscriptions as a really major subset of dark patterns. Not that they are in of themselves deceptive, um, but it's more that they are really ripe for potentially deceiving consumers if they don't understand what they're signing up for, they don't know how they're going to be billed, they're giving up sensitive or personal data in reliance on an offer that they don't really understand, they think they're getting something and they're actually getting something else. So that's a subset of dark patterns. But the FTC is basically saying dark patterns or any any other practice the FTC might otherwise consider deceptive. So two cited examples, and it's, it's not exhaustive. There's a staff report on dark patterns that has a bunch of examples and, and visual examples as well that we can share in the yeah. show notes. But drip pricing, for example, is the practice of hiding certain fees until like the very last page of a checkout flow. So you're advertising a certain price, then you get to the end and you are like shipping fees, handling fees for hotels, for example, like random resort fees, things like that, that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So the FTC has actually currently proposed a rule specifically on what they call junk fees. Um, and that would cover things like drip pricing, hidden fees, um, false senses of urgency, encouraging you to pay more than you might otherwise pay, and a bunch of other tactics. Um, something I do want to say, I'm going to mention a few times in today's session that the FTC is proposing new rules on a bunch of things. So right. they're currently proposing a new negative option rule that would streamline things, track the states more, apply to all subscription programs and all media. They're also proposing this new rule on junk fees. Something I do want to mention is that just because these are pending updates to the law doesn't mean the FTC wouldn't, as of today, still find some of those practices deceptive, right? The reason yeah. that the FTC is currently in this rulemaking frenzy and being very aggressive is it's just more ways for them to get money out of companies. So if they pass these into specific laws, then they can look for civil penalties under those specific laws versus just saying this is a deceptive practice under Section 5 of the FTC Act. So as we go through, you know, we'll be talking about a lot of the proposed updates to the law and things that the FTC is going to expressly find deceptive. But just remember that these are all practices the FTC could find deceptive today if they wanted to. They're just looking for more ways to get real like monetary penalties against these companies to make examples of them going forward. Yeah. And, and let's go there now because I think we, we should explain. I mean, thank you for that pretty uh, rich definition of the terms, but uh, making sure that everybody can really follow what the FTC has done because the uh, proposed update to the regulatory framework was introduced last spring, I believe, by the FTC, correct? Yes, so that's right. As we start at the point of why have they chosen to kind of reinforce now this drive at this point of time? So I think there are a couple of things. First of all, and I think this is legitimate, the existing patchwork of federal laws is really confusing because you have ROSCA, you have the negative option rule, you've got the telemarketing sales rule, and it's just difficult for companies to track all of the different requirements. So I think one impetus is, look, subscription programs have exploded. Just generally, e-commerce has exploded more in recent years. And that's a shift that is not pandemic specific, right? Like companies yeah. have invested substantial money into now transitioning more to an e-commerce focus. So subscription programs aren't going anywhere. So in light of that, both because they're potentially deceptive and because the current laws aren't really clear, I think that's the impetus for the FTC to say, look, we're going to propose one streamlined 
updated negative option rule is going to apply to subscription programs in all media. Because right now you've got a separate law for online plans, you've got a separate law for direct mail, you've got a separate law for telemarketing plans. So they'd say now the negative option rule is going to apply to everything. A lot of the proposed updates really track the most conservative state laws like California. And that, again, is a way for the FTC to make it easier for people to comply. Um, because right now, you know, when I advise my clients, it's like we have to do a 50 state survey where most of your consumers make sure you're complying with Kentucky and Colorado and the FTC's laws, whereas right now it's going to make it yeah. easier for companies to track um, what's going on. And then there's just a, the FTC is really focused on these traps that make it really difficult for consumers to cancel their subscriptions. They think there's substantial financial harm to consumers, or there has been in recent years based on subscription programs specifically. And so as we can see from you know the case they brought against Amazon, their latest probe into Adobe for confusing cancellation mechanisms, they're kind of making some big targets, some example enforcement actions now. They're proposing these updates, I think in a bid to say like, we're taking this really seriously. Companies need to read these proposed updates. And I think my hunch is all of those or at least 90% of them are going to get codified into law. So this is really like a grace period, I think, from the FTC to say, this is serious. We are going to investigate companies that have deceptive subscription tactics. This is kind of your notice to get buttoned up, you know, spend money if you have to, to audit your programs. And then my bet is that they're going to, you know, codify these updates into law later, later this year. And you don't want to be in a position where you're implementing those updates once it's already been passed, right? Because I right. think the FTC is already doing probes, right? The Adobe probe became public a couple of weeks ago, but it's been going on for two years, right? Yeah. So I think there's probably already a few companies on the FTC's radar, and this is their way of trying to make it easier for companies to comply so they don't have as much of an excuse to say, oh, well, it was confusing. I didn't understand what I had to do. Of course. So for businesses that are running subscriptions out there, what do you recommend the set of actions that we kind of start, should start looking at? I think the, the very first thing is to audit your e-commerce signup and checkout flows, you know, in conjunction with your technical teams, if necessary, mm. you know, do an analysis of, you know, where you can invest your money most wisely to make changes. And, you know, as outside counsel, there's often a bit of a back and forth, right? Because the FTC's guidance is very conservative. And I will frequently hear like, if we do all of this stuff, we're going to lose consumers. No one's going to sign up. You know, if we can't, for example, the FTC says, now you can't upsell a consumer when they try to cancel unless you get their consent to do it first. And I have clients that are like, that's crazy. That's just advertising. You know, consumer retention has been around for <laughs> decades. It's just, you know, how do you save your consumers? And so there is a bit of a, a nuance to trying to make changes wisely, you know, recognizing the potential impact on revenue, but also recognizing that if you get investigated by the FTC, you probably have much bigger financial issues to, to worry about. Um, so there, there is a balance. But so what I would recommend, look at your entire e-commerce flow. You know, sometimes I literally get these in Figma or as a PDF to mark up yeah. and say, you know, here's where you need to make changes. So there's kind of a few different stages, right? It's your sign up process. So it's your disclosures to consumers about what the offer is, what the charges are, they have to be accurate, how frequently they're going to be billed, disclosing all of the relevant charges up front, getting their, you know, affirmative consent to the subscription plan. Increasingly, I recommend, you know, having a checkbox or some other kind of affirmative action. The FTC recently challenged a company for, you know, having this disclosure below this kind of like I agree button, but it didn't really 
accurately communicate what these people were signing up for and they were kind of signing away their data for telemarketing without realizing it. So that's sort of phase one is looking at your sign up disclosures and how you present the program. Then it's going to be, you know, how you communicate with consumers after that. So are you sending the right kind of acknowledgement, recapping how they can cancel? Are you sending reminder notices on the appropriate basis? So right now, each state has got different reminder notice requirements, which can make that a little bit challenging. Some of them require reminders for monthly programs. Others only care about them for six-month programs or annual programs where people are more likely to you know, forget about their subscription. Mm. The FTC is proposing that even if you have a month-to-month -month subscription, people should still get a reminder before the 12th month. So I'd say the FTC and states are mostly tracking this kind of 12-month cycle is the time where you need to be sending reminder notices to people. And then, you know, looking at the cancellation flow and the cancellation procedure. That can be a little bit more complicated than just marking up a PDF or your website because you have to look at what's going on operationally. Um, you know, are people able to get connected directly to a live person if you have a phone number? Yeah. You know, I think the consensus between the FTC and the states right now is, you know, if you have an online subscription or people have signed up online, they have to be able to cancel online and it has to be with immediate effect. So that what what does immediate mean is a question I get a lot. And it's really just you can't make it overly onerous for people to cancel and it has to be at least as easy as it was to sign up. So this is what we mean by the proposed click to cancel rule, um, which we also has an element of what we call mirror cancellation. Um, as evidenced by the Amazon case, that doesn't mean that if it took you 37 screens to sign up, that you can have 37 screens to cancel, uh, but it's more just a metric that it should be, you know, equally as easy, if not easier, um, and get, you know, honored with immediate effect. So that's really important. I think the FTC is very focused on that. That's a practice that challenged with Amazon and Adobe. And I think it's going to start going after smaller actors that might not have as egregious of practices as Amazon's Iliad flow. Um, something we also want to look at is if you do also offer phone cancellations or you have a chat bot or something like that, looking at the scripts to make yeah. sure you're not introducing unnecessary upsells or making it you know, overly onerous for people to cancel. Uh, one of the proposed rules is interesting because it says that you have to honor disconnects as cancellations. So let's say that I'm trying to cancel my subscription. I'm talking to a chat bot and then I get fed up because it's taking too long and I disconnect. You're supposed to treat that as a cancellation, which I don't think most companies are currently doing. So to boil that down, an audit of each kind of vertical of your e-commerce process and flow and then looking operationally at your practices. And then I'd say alongside that, on the non-operational side, looking at your terms of service for whatever your offering is. So looking at your subscription terms of service, making sure they are clear, making sure they accurately describe any pro rata refunds, or I think we'll get to this, any kind of consumption-based pricing or anything like that, um, to make sure those are really buttoned up too. So when we speak about subscriptions, uh, subscriptions come in many different flavors, we can say. So just to give a few examples of uh, whether that's a flat fee, uh, we, will we will be speaking a little bit more about usage-based uh, models. I want to dig a little bit deeper there and want to test a few uh, ideas that I have with you as well on that. But with the different, um, you know, with the, with the um, tiers that we have with the flat fee and a little bit of maybe usage on top of, do you see uh, the different ways of providing subscriptions all be equally fair? Or do you see a difference between the different modalities? I think it's a, it's a great question. I think 
regulators are much more focused on flat fee subscription programs where someone is getting charged the same amount on a monthly or an annual basis, you know, regardless of how much they use the service or if they, you know, enjoy the benefits of the yep. service. I think their rationale would be that people are more likely to be tricked into those kinds of programs, especially if they don't really understand the nature of the recurring billing and, and what they're getting. Obviously, there are flat fee subscription programs that also have tiers of pricing. Sure. And so, you know, there the FC might be focused on, you know, if you downgrade someone or you upgrade someone or you change their benefits, you reduce the benefits someone's getting, but they're still paying the same price and they don't understand. Those are all examples of potential dark patterns, um, even if you have tiered pricing. Yeah. I don't think there was focused on usage-based billing. I think to the extent that someone's still getting billed automatically, you still have to keep these laws in mind. So you still have to look at them and figure out how they might apply. But I think that those consumption-based models have an inherent degree of transparency um, because consumers presumably really understand that they're signing up for a usage-based model and assuming that you disclose what the fees are going to be or how you're calculating them. Yeah. And then people are getting notified. They can still cancel at any time. You know, I think you still have to keep these laws in mind, but I do think that it's inherently a model that doesn't lend itself to being uh, deceptive as much as a flat fee model or an annual yeah. model. Yeah. And although the uh, initiative from FTC might be painful for some businesses, principally, I think it's a great initiative. I think it's going to, on an overall level, be better for all businesses because it forces us to do fair business and good business. Because if we think about, and when we now spoke mostly about the specific mode of transaction when you sign up and maybe upsells and so on or cancellations, but if you take another space that has been painful for many consumers or customers is with the advent of digitalization, if you try to contact a firm, it's much more difficult today than it used to be back in the days. So you basically are sent in these endless loops of trying to find where do I contact the customer support of, a, of an organization. And there we just have to admit that as an industry, we've, uh, we've lost the plot to some extent in our search for optimization and efficiency. Now back to the subject we're discussing today, there are tons of examples, unfortunately, today where we make it awfully hard for, for the customer to be empowered, I call it that. What I wanted to ask you, though, is do you have good examples of companies that you would say this is a good practice, this is a good example of how you do it. And not necessarily so much for the company and logo itself, it's more for us to understand this is how fair and transparent looks. And you want to really say that this is a good practice to follow. You know, I find that a lot of the streaming services have gotten really buttoned up with this, you know, whether that's, you know, like the Netflixes or Hulus of the world, mm -hmm. just because they are such targets and in the crosshairs and also consumers get really annoyed about being billed for streaming services or bundles that, you know, they didn't necessarily sign up for. And so, you know, both of those platforms and others have, you know, bundled offerings, tiered offerings, you know, ad supported, not ad supported, very clear and transparent about what each of those models entails. Um, and, you know, good cancellation procedures. So that, that's something that I would that I would say. I think your point about people getting sent in endless digital loops is a good one. I think an area where I'd be careful is I see a lot of companies and clients 
jumping on the AI bandwagon, not so much for generative AI, but using it to automate customer support processes, which, you know, it's obviously a great tool um, to automate certain internal policies, but the FTC is pretty focused on that too. So they would say, you know, if someone's communicating with a chatbot or, you know, you're using AI, people need to understand that and you can't use that to basically send people in, in circles and make it really difficult for them. Yeah. Um, in terms of your point about some people, companies in the industry not being so jazzed about these updates, you know, just yesterday, the FTC held an informal hearing to hear from trade associations about their reaction to the proposed updates to the negative option rule. Uh, the reaction was pretty uh, negative. <laughs> you know, we had the IAB, PMA, and a couple of franchise associations. You know, and some of the issues that were raised were it's going to be really costly for some companies to comply with these updates, you know, more costly than perhaps the FTC anticipates. You know, I I think that really depends on the company, but I will say that some of these changes, especially in terms of just disclosures, how people accept the offer at checkout, you know, what you're telling people, sending emails to confirm. Generally speaking, I think that can be managed within budget, especially if you tackle these issues early so you're not retrofitting all of these issues once your UX is already finalized and all of that. Um, perhaps operational procedures for cancellation might be a little bit more costly. But again, I think when you weigh that against the, the cost of an investigation, it's worth it. And especially that given that we have some I think we have several months lead time before the FTC is going to bring an additional investigation into something that isn't you know, extremely egregious. So yeah. that's just something to keep in mind. Yeah. So let's go to the question I had on usage-based pricing, and you kind of already semi-answered it. But I was meaning to, uh, to ask you if w there's a lot of talk about most businesses either exploring to go fully into or part into usage-based pricing. Now, you already said that inherently built into that model uh, is a bit more of a fair and transparent approach because assuming that you would actually open up and show how do you calculate the usage and how do you arrive at the price and then you also show the usage transparently. Do you believe that usage, you had a set of recommendations, would you go as far as saying that for businesses to really consider the approach of usage would be helpful um, in general in, in shifting the uh, empowerment towards the consumer? Or do you believe that that can also be done by just a flat fee subscription mode? I mean, I think it's definitely possible to run flat fee subscription models in a fair and transparent manner. Um, I think I mentioned this earlier on. I don't think that these models are inherently deceptive. It's just that they can often get bundled with you know, the rest of the transaction. They're not disclosed to consumers. And you know, some companies really do want to make it overly easy for people to get locked into a subscription and make money that way. But that's, those aren't the actors that are really trying to be fair and transparent. Usage-based pricing, perhaps inherently, you're communicating more with the consumer and the whole point is that they understand how they're going to be billed. Um, it also inherently involves more tracking of user data. Um, so I think you have to be more transparent about that collection and what it's being used for with a usage-based yeah. model. You know, I think there's a bit more legwork to track that. I think there's perhaps more human oversight, especially if you're using automated processes to calculate what people are being charged. There's a bit more margin for error um, with that kind of program, I would say. You know, we also in the flat fee subscription model, I think class action plaintiffs tend to focus more on flat fee subscription models. And actually frequently when we get a class action filed, a lot of them are plaintiffs that like signed up for the program, like for the express 
purpose of bringing a class action and often they won't like use a service and they say I'm getting charged for something where I didn't even like enjoy the benefits. That's an argument you wouldn't have with a usage based program because you're being billed based on what you use. Um, so you might also just practically reduce class action risk and the potential for consumer complaints also. Yeah. Hey, we, we talked about, you just mentioned the um, subscription data and usage around from the customer side. What does the FTC say about data collection when it comes to subscription businesses? Well, they're very focused on data collection in general. <laughs> and I think, you know, well, I should also mention dark patterns has a specific definition in some of the state privacy laws where it's more geared towards, you know, you shouldn't use dark patterns to subvert a person's privacy choices or trick them into giving over their personal data. Um, I think the FTC's view is very consistent with that, especially if you're collecting sensitive data like biometric data for a health tech subscription or something like that. Um, the FTC recently brought an action against a company called Response Tree on this specific issue, essentially that people were signing up for a program. They thought they're signing up just for like information about it. There was like a submit button. And then below that was this whole disclosure about how their information was going to be used for telemarketing purposes in connection with the subscription. And that wasn't adequately disclosed to the consumer. It both wasn't adequately disclosed. It was below the submit button. And then the button didn't signify any kind of assent to that. You know, really should say something like, yes, I agree to my subscription or stop my subscription now. And then like have the disclosure about, you know, telemarketing front and center above that. So that was just from a couple of weeks ago. They're obviously very focused on this issue. But I think in general, it's going to be that dark patterns approach. You know, are you misleading people into giving up more data that is necessary for what you're communicating? Are you accurately communicating the scope of use of that data? Um, and you have to be very careful when you're engaging in LE telemarketing type activities. Um, there's a federal law regulating text message marketing, uh, marketing communications over text. Um, the penalties are much, much higher than for non-compliance with email marketing laws, which are opt-out laws anyway. Um, and you have to get express consent to send people text messages. So that's just another thing to keep in mind because a lot of subscription-based programs will offer um, text updates or text marketing, discount codes, things like that. Right. Would you say the U.S. with the initiative from the FTC is uh, globally ahead? Because there's been a number of initiatives, mostly I would say the GDPR initiative here in, on the European side has been mostly known, but that's uh, more revolving around the data protection and safety and integrity for for the user, or customer, uh, consumer, less so around the initiatives that the FTC is pressing on. Uh, where does where does the rest of the world stand on this on on the same type of initiatives? Would you know? Yeah, so the FTC, I'd say, is a leader, but other countries are really, really not far behind. Um, so, for example, Canada has automatic renewal laws that pretty closely track the U.S. and are even more conservative in some cases. You have to take a more conservative approach to email marketing in Canada in general. The ASA in the U.K has proposed rules that are very close to the FTC's rules and automatic renewals. Other companies like Germany even go a step further and they actually prohibit certain types of subscription-based programs altogether. So it's really a global analysis if you're an international company. You know, I think starting with a US analysis is a good start. And often what I'll do, because I work with clients on a global basis, is let's adjust your flow for the US first, and then we gut check it with local counsel in each of the countries where you have key consumer bases to make sure everything you know lines up globally and then you have kind of one 
model that's working. Um, some some companies do take a bifurcated approach, so their UK e-commerce flow is different from their US e-commerce flow. I think going forward, it probably just makes sense to go with the lowest common denominator because these models yeah. are constantly evolving and they tend to track the US's. Um, but yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a global analysis, especially for digital service companies. You know, software as a service, streaming, all of those are typically offered internationally. Does the FTC make a difference between B two B and B two C type services, or is are the uh, rules and regulations applied the same across? Uh, it's a really good question. So you know, both the states and the FTC have historically been more focused on B two C. And most of the state laws are, you know, put out under the consumer protection laws. So they're, you know, supposed to be with respect to consumer contracts. That said, a lot of states will have specific laws for B2B type arrangements like uh, SaaS, uh, maintenance, repair, personal property, security, things like that. And then the FTC has interpreted ROSCA on a handful of occasions. Um, that's the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act again to apply to B2B transactions as well. And now in the proposed updates to the negative option rule, the FTC is making it clearer that they would enforce these in certain B2B contexts as well. So I'd say if you're like an enterprise level software solution offering certain enterprise level um, services, primarily B2B, you still want to think about these. There might be just a little bit more nuance in exactly what's required. Some of like the consumer contracting and enforceability issues wouldn't necessarily come into play. Um, but I look at those in a case by case. But yes, in, in general, B2B is not exempt from these considerations. Gotcha. You know, I want to go back to the set of recommendations that you made before. And what strikes me is I'm not necessarily surprised that many companies are struggling with this because in your recommendations, you basically said audit your entire basic flow and making sure if I reword it, make sure that you make it as frictionless and as easy for the customer consumer to understand what they bought, to understand how they can make changes, including stop if they want to. Um, and that just puts a tremendous amount of requirement on the seller here, the company, to be able to show full transparency, full accuracy, full auditability of the customer's, let's call it usage pattern. Yeah. And I can just say from our vantage point as a company, when we work with businesses that despite subscription businesses have had a really fascinating growth the last 10 years, when it comes to the back end, if I refer to it as such, where the data sits between the portfolio, the pricing mechanism, the billing and so on, we are still very, very early in the industry of how we manage that. It's, it's, laborious it's manual it's quite ineffective so businesses have a handful of just managing those processes to do the business that they have let alone moving the needle towards becoming transparent as they should be now there are really good examples uh, of both companies but i'll just take one industry because this industry have, have been doing it for the longest and it's it's an easy one because some of us now you're quite a bit younger than me, but some of us uh, remember how it was in the beginning. And I'm going to go to the telecoms industry because in the beginning of the 2000s, when telecoms started to dish out these lovely subscriptions for cellular and data, for any of us who had data plans in the early 2000s, remember that it was anything then uh, frictionless because we got bill shocks. We had, you know, we had subscriptions. We thought we knew what we were paying for. We consumed it. And then suddenly we were paying for things that we didn't understand. And it was, you felt 
that it was really difficult for you to influence. And there was there were non number of stories, and you probably know of the stories as well, is that consumers, customers that have been tremendously frustrated with mm -hmm. the telecom operators. Now, not to say that all of the friction is gone, but I'm saying today, if you look as a customer, you have extremely well-specified bills that itemizes basically everything that you've done, and that's super transparently handed to you. And most telecom operators that I've at least interacted with allows you to easily access your own commercial contract so that you can adapt, mm -hmm. make changes. And that is an acknowledgement of a journey that they've done. And this is what I think when I look at your set of recommendations, one of the things that I want to just send away to any business is in order for you to be able to fulfill these requirements and to be able to do a sustainable business at the same time, you need to look at your data management backend side. Because otherwise, if you're going to try to do it manually, laboriously, it's going to be extremely hard. And I'm not sure if it's even doable, to be frank. Yeah. And I'm glad you raised the telecoms industry because they're sort of like one of the, to your point, one of the earliest industries to come under fire for these types of programs, and earliest adopters of a subscription model. And there were a bunch of actions against companies in the telecoms industry, from, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, you know, around people signups, charging people early termination fees, penalties for canceling their subscription early, things like that, which are still considered deceptive practices. But to your point, the telecoms industries had a long time to work out the kinks. I will just say, I think the FTC understands that there's a period of compliance where people are going to need to build this in by design. Yeah. To your point, look at their data models. I think they are Going to enforce this on a going forward basis. And, you know, I've informally spoken to the FTC from time to time just to get a sense of where their priorities are. And they've repeatedly said they're not going after companies that have a minor incidence of technical non compliance or, you know, they, they missed out on like element two, Romanet three of what the FTC Act says to do. I mean, ideally there's full compliance, but I think they are going to start by looking at companies that are intentionally not being transparent or that really should know better based on what they've put out so far. So I'd say start with what you can easily change. And then if there is a longer tail for everything else, we can work on that. Um, but, you know, implement the easy updates first, basically. Lowest cost and easy updates first. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. I think we're going to try to summarize it now. I, I've really appreciated this, Pamela, because, you know, typically when we have guests on the show, we we uh, tend to focus on growth aspects of subscription businesses and all the various technical aspects that we need to fulfill and so on. I think this is, uh, let me use the word, um, a robust topic that we needed to have on the table as well, because this is one of those things that one needs to really care for. Thank you for being so pragmatic in your explanations. This was helpful. Just as a final point to you then, I mean, you had a great set of recommendations, but run us through the three things that you want to send us off with. So me running a subscription business, listening to this, I want to take this seriously. What are the three things I should do tomorrow? So I'd say, number one, pull up as much as you can of your user flow, contact your X team, say, you know, send me whether, you know, whatever format it's in so we can go through it. I will say, gut check it with legal counsel if you don't already have legal counsel. Sometimes that only takes like frankly, like an hour of time, it's well worth the time just to get that gut check. And then there can always be an analysis about, okay, where are you? What do we need to change? What do we need to update? 
And then I'd say to your point that I'd look at your global operations and start thinking about whether there's anything you need to start buttoning up there. If you don't vet these programs globally, I think it's time to start doing that. Um, and then finally, you know, I think educate on the FTC's initiatives generally. This is a very active regulatory regime right now. The FTC Commissioner Lena Khan is just put, you know, putting out these new rules like weekly. And it's not just subscriptions. It's, you know, how do you use influencers? How are you using endorsers to promote your product? Um, how do you post consumer reviews? There's a lot in e-commerce that the FTC is focusing on outside of this issue. And so to the extent you're running these programs, you haven't been thinking about it, just a good time to, to think about that too. Um, I have a, a newsletter I send out. You can feel free to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, shoot me an email, um, pkumar at dglaw.com um, if you want to hear more about any of that. But I'd say, you know, those are really the things you should be doing tomorrow. Fantastic. Pamela, thank you so much for your time. I appreciated this. This was great. Thank you so much. Um, I hope to be back. And thank you for everyone that joined us today. Thank you all. Bye.